Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today we're going to continue our talk about the culture and the adoption of the homosexual lifestyle and what the Bible has to say about it. In this podcast, we'll address the numerous comments and questions that came from our last episode. And as usual, we'll have several scriptures that we'll reference today, and we'll put those in the overview. So with the follow-up of our previous episode as our primary focus, let's just all dig right in. All right. The main concern we're going to look at, and there's a lot of technical aspects here, and we've tried our best to make the forest visible and not get lost in the trees, is a concern that the word homosexual did not appear in English Bibles until 1946. And that's what we're looking at. It is an argument over words, and we hope we can make it clear uh, what our understanding is of the word in the Greek that is translated in our English language now by the word homosexual. We got a lot of feedback, both online um, and emails, and commentary uh, about this episode. So we're going to try to address each concern uh, that came up. Exactly, exactly. So let's take a look at this. Um, Of course, there's always been words of various kinds before 1946 to describe this particular sexual phenomenon we looked at last podcast and looking at today. The word came into the English from a, a German book, German psychological book, Uh, examining deviations from the norm in the sexual world. Um, This was um, in 1892. The book was printed, written before that, but that's when it made it into the English language. It was called uh, Psychopathia Sexualis, and apparently very popular in Germany. However, there are those who have contested that actually the word homosexual was first used back in 1868, when there were a lot of pamphlets circling around uh, England which were against the anti-sodomy laws. You say sodomy? I say, yeah, we'll see where that comes in in just a few minutes. But they were actually what we would say then anti-homosexual laws. And that's where the word was first used. Nonetheless, here it is in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary from the 2003 edition. Here is their definition of the word homosexual. Of, relating to, or characterized by a tendency to direct sexual desire toward another of the same sex. Second definition. Of, relating to, or involving sexual intercourse between persons of the same sex. It starts off by giving us a date of 1892. And, far as I can tell, that is the entrance of it into the English language and made it into the Bibles by uh, the middle of the uh, 20th century. Curiously, in my research, the word heterosexual came into use uh, in 1941 for my research author, G.W. Henry, and he was doing research, just like the German book was, on uh, homosexuality, as we call it now, and he needed a word to discuss ex-gays. Now, this is back in the 1940s, people who had been in the homosexual community and had come out of it. Mm. And so he comes up with the word heterosexual, which meant I used to be gay. I'm not. Language changes. Today, no one understands that word that way. They understand heterosexual means straight. Interesting. From the get-go. Yeah. So we're going to dig into this, and I beg your patience because it involves a little technical things with languages, Greek, and all of that, but I think it'll be worth your while. First, let's remember the text we're using 
and it's from the ESV, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Randy? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Yes, and the ESV there, as well as the NET, will give you a footnote saying there are two Greek words there in that passage, one denoting the passive actor in the relationship, in the act, and the other person who is active, the active member in the relationship or the particular act in question. So keep that in mind. Speaking of the way language changes, let's go back to 1862. And this is uh, Young's Literal Translation, published and released in 1862. Here is his translation back then, a long time ago, from 1 Corinthians 6.9. Have ye not known that the unrighteous, the reign of God, shall not inherit? Be not led astray, neither whoremongers, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor sodomites. Okay, of course, he's already talked about the reign of God, which is the kingdom of God, and these are people who are excluded from it. Let's take a look at Mr. Young. He translates these two Greek words by two words. Now, the ESV just uses the one, homosexual. So let's take a look at the two words. First word in the Greek is effeminate. It's malakos, M-A-L-A-K-O-S. It means soft, soft. Here is a passage using that word out of its sexual context here in Corinthians to a different context in Matthew. This is why these matters are somewhat technical. Matthew 11, verse 8. Randy? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. Yes, that's the idea. That's the literal definition. The connotation, of course, as it's used here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, is sexual, and it's taken to mean uh, soft, compliant, passive, the person who would be that way in a relationship that is homosexual, as the next Greek word we'll look at uh, determines. Effem so, that's effeminate. What's that, that? That one's effeminate. Yeah, the, Malikos is effeminate. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Mr. Young calls the next word we're going to look at from the Greek, but first let's look at his English translation. Neither the effeminate nor sodomites. Now, that was a word well understood mm. in the... Uh, a lot 18, easier. I think, uh, yeah. I think that one's easier. In understood. the 1800s. Yeah. Very well understood. And because it referred to the men of Sodom who engaged in those relationships and brought on the judgment of, of God. So, we have his translation of what is now in the ESV, homosexual. So, the debate then is over this second word, which... Mr. Young translates as sodomites, and I might add that's a lot clearer than when I first studied the Bible back in the 1960s, using the old King James, and the word was abusers of themselves with mankind, which when I read, I said, I have no idea what yeah. they're talking about. Yeah. All right. So what is this word in the Greek then? We've got to go to the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, did take a year of it, and uh, my good mentor in the faith said, if you don't have a gift... You just need the basics to understand some things so people won't pull the wool over your eyes, and that's been my guiding light ever since. It's a compound word. It is one word, but it's made up from two words, just like a lot of words in our language are made up. Uh, arsenokoites, two words. Arsen, which means male, and that is used nine times in the New Testament. 
the normal word in the Greek for man, and sometimes male, but mostly man, is anthropos. It's where we get our word anthropology. Mm. And it's used over 500 times in the New Testament, referring to mostly men, and then sometimes men and women, mankind, people. So it has a kind of uh, lax, uh, elastic to it. that It can cover a lot of things, but primarily it's made to, man does not live by bread alone. In the Greek, that's anthropos. And Jesus says that to the, uh, to the devil. So, let's take a look at the next word, koites, or koite by itself, but in this context it's koites. Uh, it refers to bed, sometimes used in a sense of sleep, getting uh, sleeping in bed. But the main thing here is that's where we in the English get our word koites, which is obviously a sexual term, mm. I'm sure we know. And three times in the New Testament, it is associated with matters of sex one way or the other. Here is Randy reading Romans 9.10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Conceived, meaning she was in the marriage bed. The idea is that's where the act took place and she conceived. Now, here's a different way it's translated. Same, same word. We're looking at the uh, word coite or cortez, which is used in association with uh, arson. In Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Okay, there, sexual immorality is the word uh, coite, and it's a bed. Obviously, it's referring to sexual matters. Here again, in Hebrews 13, 4, the word bed is used, which is coite, and it's very clear in this passage of Roman, excuse me, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So there you have that word, which means bed, but associated with sexual matters one way or the other. The only time that I can find in the New Testament when it is not used expressly in that way, but still has the association with it, is actually in Luke eleven seven where Jesus is telling a parable about uh, the inopportune man. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Yeah, children, of course, have their own places to sleep, but we all know kids love to crawl in bed with mom and dad. So uh, they're all there in bed. He doesn't want to wake them up uh, to get to the door. And the word there is uh, coite. But obviously, it's not related sexually, but it is the main bed of the house, put it that way. The marriage bed, mom and dad's bed. There is another Greek word, kline, kline. And uh, it means bed. And I'll tell you something about how it got over into English in just a second. But we need to understand that word is usually used this way. Men do not take a light and put it under the bed. That's from the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus uh, in that case. So that's, that's just a bed, all right? However, it is associated once at least with suffering. Here's Revelation 2, 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. A sickbed, sometimes called a bed of suffering, a suffering bed. Cliné uh, is the word there for bed. It's where we get our word clinical. Hmm. Uh, people who... Back in those days, uh, got sick, 
and recline, see it's got K-L-I-N-E is the way it's spelled in the Greek, uh, were on a bed and were sick. And so into our language eventually became clinical. Uh, you go to a clinic to get, you know, medicine and things of that sort. And so there, it has eight other uses in the New Testament. There's other word for bed, but they're all non-sexual. So there is something about this particular second word. Remember, it's, it's one word, but it's compound. First word is male. It means male as to gender. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 19 when he says God made them male and female. He doesn't say anthropos, man and man or man and woman. It's gender. And again, the word is used only nine times, arson. But it's, it's now associated also with the bed koite, which is in the sexual context in the New Testament. So the two words that make up this compound word, arsenokoites, uh, are found in Leviticus 20.13, right next to each other. We're going to look at that in a moment. However, we have to stop there for a second. They're located next to each other, not in our English translation, and not in the Hebrew translation, but in the Greek translation of the Hebrew that is quoted in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So let me go over that again. So often the quotes we read of authors of the New Testament, when they're quoting the Old Testament, they're not quoting the Hebrew. They're quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew that had been around a couple hundred years by that time. There are some 300 quotes made by authors in the New Testament quoting the Old Testament. Two-thirds of those quotes come from this Greek translation, which is known as the Septuagint. And Paul used, uses this translation often. So by the time Paul comes around, the apostles, even in the time of Jesus, the Jews of that day were very familiar with this Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, into Greek because they had been dispersed, Babylon trans, uh, trans out from everything because of the judgment of God. They left uh, Israel. Some came back. Others just stayed out and they called the diaspora out there in the Greek world and needed, and children growing up didn't know the language. Mm. So uh, they knew Greek. And so the scholars came together, 70 supposedly, but we have no idea if it's 70 or 20. It's just that's the word that's come down to us. And translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And that is the text that is normally quoted when they're quoting Old Testament texts in the New Testament. So in Leviticus 20.13, the two words, arson male, koite bed, are right next to each other. If you want to look at it, if you have some passing familiarity with New Testament Greek, you can look that up. You can find this. It's called the Septuagint. You can find it online in Greek and look at it. So let's take a look at what Leviticus 20.13 says, Randy. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Yes. The word arson is there male, and then koite, the bed, or some translations say sleep, but it's, it's the word bed. Now, the, the Jews of that day and the churches say that Paul established, and the Greeks who had been converted, saved, and come in to those churches were uh, familiar with this section of Leviticus, and here's why. I know Leviticus is not a popular book, period, <laughs> let alone the sexual issues we're addressing uh, among Christians. When you say, how many people love to read Leviticus, It'd raise your hand and, you know, you'll get nobody. It's not quoted over the holidays as the family sits around. It, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, however, believe it or not, Leviticus is quoted some 40 times in mm. the New Testament, and that's not counting maybe allusions to it that you could ferret out. 14 
of those 40 quotes from Leviticus are from chapters 18 through 20. And that's because these chapters are the one, especially chapters 18 and 20, which have the holiness codes and deal with matters of sexuality, uh, what they call lines of consanguinity. You can't have sex with someone in your bloodline. You can't have sex with someone in the marriage line, in-laws, aunts, nieces, uncles, mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. So that being the case, uh, we're dealing with the holiness code. And let's take a look at that, and I'll give you an example from the New Testament of a quote, another quote from Leviticus, which shows this to be so. Let's look now at Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6, 7, and 8. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. All right, now notice, first of all, the mother, and then second, the wife. What's the difference? Well, because quite often there would be divorce. Divorce was rampant. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 19, the New Testament, and the father remarried, and maybe he had what would now be the fellow's stepmother, and that's what we're looking at. So not with your mom, obviously, that's incest, nor with your father's next wife, whoever that might be, stepmother. And how does this work out in the New Testament? We'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man has his father's wife. That's a quote from that chapter that Randy just read. And notice, he doesn't say mom, because that was in the Leviticus text. He says the wife, and everybody understands this to mean the stepmom. Notice, and we're going to look at this in a second because it's helpful, that Paul is saying even the pagans don't do this, mm. meaning that he really accepts the sexual codes of Leviticus 18 as valid all the way through. We don't have time to go into that. However, in Matthew 14, 4, when John the Baptist was confronting Herod, he used the same text. He said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, because he was married to who now is Herodias, who had been his brother's wife. And John the Baptist ended up getting into prison because of that, and eventually, of course, loses his head. But it was a big deal with John the Baptist. Mm. Now, in the same context, in Leviticus 18, dealing with what we just mentioned, lines of consequently bloodlines or in-law lines or stepmother lines, as the case may be, we drop down to verse 22 in Leviticus 18, and we read this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Yeah, and that's clear. In the Greek and English, you don't lie with a, a man as a, you lie with a woman. It's just, it has nothing to do with master-slave relationship, has nothing to do with pedestry, has nothing to do with older men and young boys. It's the act itself between clearly what would be two consenting adults since they both should die. Someone who gets raped in, in the Old Testament, that's a different story. They got laws to cover that. Clearly, Paul sees the one just as valid as the other as being detestable before God. And this Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 that Randy just read is not taken out of context. It's in context with all the other deviations from the norm established by this holiness code from Leviticus. And it is quoted there in the New Testament. And as I said, Leviticus is quoted some 40 times in the whole New Testament. But the valid ones that we're looking at right now for our subject is from this holiness code, which 
church was obviously familiar with, or sometimes, as case with many Christians, we need to be reminded what's in the Bible, which is what Paul's doing to the church at Corinth. So, given Paul's take on this, it was certainly valid for him and therefore binding on the church. But notice this. Paul says even the pagans don't do this. They don't allow a son to take on and have sexual relationship with the wife of his father. Because both in the Jewish community as well as the Greek and Roman, it's an honor and shame society and dishonors. And of course, the, the father was such a potent figure in Greek-Roman society. You know, originally in, in Roman society, he had the power of life and death uh, with uh, the family as to who would live and die sometimes, depending on situation. Uh, this is a big deal in the pagan world. However, keep in mind, he never says this about homosexuality because they did that. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a big difference. They didn't see that. They saw this as a problem. Son, you cannot sleep with my wife I just married. And you're, you, know, you, you can't do that. You can't go to the bed with her. And yet, clearly, they tolerated, put up with homosexual uh, relationships of various kinds. So what's the criticism here? That this word Paul created from this passage in Leviticus 20, 13, the reason why we use that one, not 18, is because the two words there are just right next to each other. It's so clear, they just you can link them together. The criticism is that Paul created this word from the Leviticus passage, and this word is not found in the Greek-Roman world of Paul's day. He made it up. Well, yes, of course. He needed a word to make the people understand this is wrong. They understood the context these two words come from. We would understand it if we were familiar with the context. But he didn't make it up out of thin air. The word arson, male, in the Greek Roman society was used often to make compound words. And that's true in, in our society. It's the same 2,000 years later. For instance, we have mankind, manslaughter, manufacture, manpower, my favorite, man witch. If you like that kind of food. <laughs> and the same is true with the word male in our language. Male factor. Malevolent, which starts with the word male and violent. Mm-hmm. Malevolent. So making compound words is what languages do. It's what Paul did. Because there wasn't a word around, apparently, that he was satisfied with, which would describe exactly from the Levitical code of the Old Testament, which he holds as valid, what was going on. So let's answer this criticism then. First, to start with, the world of Paul's day had little use for Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. None. They were not reading it. The only people looking at this are the people in the churches that Paul's established. Jews would be familiar with it. The Gentile converts became familiar with it. Secondly, uh, the world, not seeing Leviticus 20, 13, you shall not lie with a, uh, a man as you lie with a woman. It's abomination, both shall die. They didn't see it as a problem. So they had no interest to give it a contextual name, making it an abomination before God. That's the key here. Paul wanted to come up with something which clearly was in a context that they were familiar with, which would mean this word, these words, in this context, clearly mean God doesn't like this. All right. The world didn't come up with their own compound word because, one, they didn't have a problem with it, and they certainly weren't going to put it out of a context where they'd have to be suffering the judgment of God. So... The church has a stake in this because Paul says, do this, you don't get in the kingdom of God. So this is why it's important. Thirdly, and I hope this helps, it's an in-house word. That's why it's not found in the world. 
in-house words are very helpful. Uh, Randy works for, uh, well, you tell him, Randy. I, I work for a company that does identity and access management, or IAM as we call it. And within IAM, we have uh, we have different verticals. We have PAM, we have AM, we have IGA, and we have RI. <laughs> and if you know what those things are, you operate in our world. And if you don't, you wonder, what does he do again? That's right. I have yeah. no idea what you just said. <laughs> um, but that's the idea of contextualization of words. They mm -hmm. have certain meanings in context. And that's why Paul went to Leviticus for two words in a context where everybody knew this is all about wrong sex, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, in education, because I was a teacher for almost 30 years, uh, Bloom's Taxonomy. And I'm not going to go into it, but how many out there know about Bloom's Taxonomy? <laughs> well, if you're in the world of education, you've probably heard it. Uh, also, uh, having a degree in, in the Bible and all those things, I like to talk theology. And if I get together with somebody, we may begin to talk about the decrees of God. And he may ask me, say, by the way, are you an infralapsarian or a supralapsarian? And I'll just leave it at that. That's an in-house word. Why are these in-house words good? Because they are on point. You don't have to spend a half an hour explaining to somebody what this means. Mm. It would take me a while to explain the difference between the decrees of God, infralapsarian, and the problems there, <coughs> and superlapsarian, and the problems there, or the benefits of either one. Well, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Yeah, you're a little <laughs> A little stitious. Absolutely. So when Paul uses this word, arsenokoites, they've read those Greek translations. They're familiar with, and especially the Holiness Code, which is quoted from in the New Testament. And so those would be familiar to them. They would understand them. Um, Paul's in-house people would clearly get it because they've been trained in the Holiness Code. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, he uses the word without the word malikos, with Mr. Young translated as effeminate. He just uses the word to stand alone, and it needs no reinforcement. So, uh, Randy, read 1 Timothy 1.10. The sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Exactly. So, uh, in the 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he uses malikos along with it, and we can't go into all the reasons why, but in 1 Timothy 1.10, he uses the word arsenokoites all by itself. And then, if we come to Romans chapter 1, which we dealt with last podcast, and look for the word homosexual, we won't find it there. What we find, in fact, is a description of what the word homosexual, now our language, defines. So, Randy, read Romans 1.27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, men lusting after men, men desiring men, women desiring their self, same sex. Um, and the word in the Greek there is arson. He uses it. Now, the word homosexual, which is a late word coming into the 20th century, uh, comes into our language and makes clear these days what Paul is talking about. And there's the rub with those who have an issue with this. It's clear. We know what the word homosexual means. It does perfectly explain and define what we find in the texts of 1 Timothy 1.10, of Romans chapter 1, verse 27, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. There's no ambiguity. We might say, according to the law of Moses, when two or three witnesses come together, there you have a stated fact. So that's 
why people criticize this because, well, Paul made it up. Understand, making up words has been going on for years to describe things in-house so the people who have a vested interest in knowing how to get things done in the house will have words at hand to make it easier, more efficient to say, do this or don't do this. Well, the church has had its own internal words forever, like transubstantiation, transubstantiation and all the other things. Transubstantiation, yeah. yes. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, next, does this view of homosexuality cause harm to those in the LGBT community? Uh, that is what we're going to address next. And when I say, well, doesn't what we've just done for the past two podcasts do that? No. The problem is we have moved in in a whole new area and we'll be looking at a whole different slew of scriptures next time because of what has come about in matters of communication and what defines reality due to the LGBT community. So I hope you tune in for that. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about. And we want to thank all of you for all of your questions and comments. Please keep them coming. And I'm sure you might have some more. So if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment where possible, and we will always, as you have seen, answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.